Well, we'll turn to God's word now. Deuteronomy chapter 5. Regular attenders, you should be able to find that easily. Deuteronomy chapter 5, the second statement of the Ten Commandments. Deuteronomy chapter 5, and once again we'll begin with verse 4. And let us stand remembering that we are hearing our Father's word. The Lord, Jehovah, spoke to you face to face out of the fire on the mountain. And he said, verse 6, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of this land of slavery. Then he told us how to live, bringing us to verse 20. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. Verse 29. Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me and keep all my commands always so that it may go well with them and with their children forever. And then verse 32. So be careful to do what the Lord your God has commanded you. Do not turn aside to the right or to the left. Walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you so that you may live and prosper and prolong your days in the land that you will possess. And this is the word of God. Thanks be to God. God loves the world. Do you believe that? Uh, maybe not always the ways of the world, but the people of the world. How many? All made in his image, all for whom Christ died. God so loved the world that what did he do? He gave his one and only, his only begotten son. That is love. So that what? Whoever believes in him shall not perish. Now there's the bad news. That means apart from him, we are perishing people. We're in trouble. We, we need to live. But he gave his son so that we don't have to perish, but have eternal life. Do you, know, do you know where that verse is found? All right. John 3.16. You're not going to help me out this morning. I can already tell. You're not going to help me out. Perhaps one of the best known verses in the Bible, one of the clearest statements of the gospel. But we often forget the very next verse, a part of the same sentence. For God did not send his son into this world. To condemn the world. He would not be so foolish as to do that. Why give his life just to condemn people? He sent his one and only son into this world. So that the world through him might be rescued. He might be saved. I'll tell you this is good news. But sometimes I know. That when we talk about this new eternal life that God would have us to live. It doesn't always feel like good news. As we've been going through the ten commandments. And each one of them seems to confront us individually. Don't you sometimes have that, that, that impression of, of feeling the conviction of God? Sometimes maybe even feeling a little bit picked on. Uh, that's, that's what happens when God says, I don't want you to perish, but your way is not really the way I've made you to live. Let me tell you, I'm ready to rescue you. I love you. I want you to live well. But this is the way. That you are supposed to live. And every time we come into this place and we hear God's word, we have to make a decision. Do we trust him? 
Do we trust him to be good? Do we really trust that God does love us? Do we trust him enough to go his way rather than our own? And sometimes it's a painful and difficult choice, don't you think? It hits us individually. Sometimes it hits us as a society. We should not be surprised when sometimes there are directions in our whole society that people say this way is good. And we come back into church and God's word says, no, 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 this way is good. And we have to wonder who is right, society or God? And is he good? Does he love us? And do we trust him? Do you see where I'm headed with this? Sometimes there are even laws in, in our world in which a government will say, this is good. We come back in and look at God's word. And it hits our, 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 our government, our, it hits our whole nation, it hits our state. And, and, and what God is saying is different from what everyone else is saying. And we have to make that hard decision. We, we come here. Is God just judging us and condemning us? As sometimes people feel when God says, no, no, not that way, but this. Or do we believe that God is loving? And that really what God wants is the very best for his people. That he didn't send his son to ruin life, but that we would live through him. What I'm getting at is here in our own state, of course, this past week, we've experienced the decision made by our Supreme Court about the whole area of sexual activity, in particular marriage, that is in contradiction to what God's word says. And you and I come here and so often I wrestle with this so much because I want this to be a welcoming and loving place because I believe that that's who our God is. God loves the world so much that he gave his one and only son and he didn't send his son to condemn the world, to judge the world, but that the world through him might, might be saved, might at last begin to live. Uh, what, what is God's statement about marriage? I put a couple of verses just in case you don't know them or for even us, uh, those of us who know them just to remind us of them. Um, from the very beginning, the book of Genesis chapter 2, in which Adam, the man, would say... <laughs> After being in the world with only plants and other animals, God created Eve. And, and I love this part. It, it's a poem. It's like a song. Now this, you can see it, is now bone of my bones when he saw Eve. This, this is the real thing, God, he said, of flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. One to come alongside. And then God's word declares, it's for this reason that a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and these two will become one flesh. The Bible's statement about what a marriage is. And then Jesus, the one who gave his life for us, reaffirmed that in a debate with people who disagreed with this. Haven't you read, he said, that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and these two will become one flesh, so that then they are no longer two but one. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. My, my brother, I hope you'll get my heart, my brothers and sisters. My, my prayer as your pastor is to grow in my love for you and for the world. Uh, I have a long way to go to love as God loves the world. But it, it is my prayer not, not to be self-righteous or condemning. But always, when, when we gather here in, in the midst of a, a world in which we as individuals need to live, and God tells us how to live, and our, we need to make a difference in the society to keep opening up this word as we do and saying, Father, what do you say? And it's my, don't you think it's my responsibility 
in spite of whatever happens in our personal lives or in our, to keep pointing you to God's way. And it's my, I feel like it's my calling to keep reminding you that God loves you and that he's good and to keep asking you to trust him and that we will leave this place being committed to his ways and to making a difference in the society that God's put us in. I feel like I had to say that this morning in the light of what is happening in our world. He has told us that he loves us and that his ways are good and that when we follow his ways, we will live. I trust him and hope you will as well. And that brings us at last. And I'll have to be as concise as I can to the ninth commandment, because I think I've changed it a little bit in light of all that's happened both in Myanmar and in China, as well as. Uh, in, in our state Supreme Court's decision to try to focus on something that, that I've talked about each week. But today gives me a good opportunity. And that is that God's thou shalt nots are good. That, that he gave them not to ruin our lives, but so that it would go well with us. So we live and prosper and live life as God created it to be lived. But by the time you get to this ninth commandment, thou shalt not, in the old version, uh, bear false witness. Against your neighbor, you might think, oh, every one of these seems to be framed so negatively. And that's what many people think about the Ten Commandments. It just tells you all these things you're, you're not supposed to do. And by the time we get to this ninth one, we keep wondering how many times are, am I going to hear what I can't do? But I want to tell you today that the very fact that God had the wisdom to frame the, the commandments in this negative way is one of the best promoters of freedom. That may not make any sense to you. Do you see a negative command just by the way it's framed just restricts one small thing and it leaves everything else free? What do I mean? Think about in the very beginning. God told people you shall not eat of this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. But, but he left all the other trees open. Now, he could have framed it positively. Here are the trees you can eat from. Apple, uh, cherry, grapefruit. But if he framed it that way, it wouldn't have been nearly as freeing as it is. Only one was restricted and everything else was left open for, for discovery, for grafting and creating new kinds of fruits and for and for enjoyment. See, I, I think about the thou shalt nots of sort of being like a fence around a dangerous power plant. Uh, when, when you go into a place like that, you'll have a power plant and you, if, if you get too close to it, it is dangerous but if you go into that place and in, in, in some areas, it's out in a, a smaller wooded area. It's just that one area that is fenced off, but all the less, rest is left open for discovery, exploration and enjoyment. One of the things I want to drive home today is that these commandments are good. And that as God says, I've rescued you from slavery, he said that when he first gave them. So I'm not going to tell you how to ruin your life. I've rescued you from slavery so that you can really live. And I want us to see today as we turn to the ninth commandment, first what it says, but also I want us to look at the things that are roped off with our speech. This powerful gift that God has given us, the God of, who can speak has given us, made in his image, this ability to speak. But there are we can abuse this great gift of speech. And do damage. So God ropes off just a little bit of it and leaves us free to create, to write poetry, uh, to sing, to teach and to learn. What is it that God ropes off? Three areas, just very briefly. Number one, by, by saying you shall not bear false testimony 
against people I bring across your path, against people in your, your community, against your neighbor. He's first roping off perjury. I mean, in, in the narrowest sense, and for all the attorneys and judges who come to our church, you need to listen carefully to this one. So wake up for just a few moments. What he is roping off is, is telling lies or, or deceiving with our words in the courtroom. Now, this was incredibly significant in the, in the ancient world because Israel was one of the few nations that didn't have trial by suspicion, but only trial by evidence supported by personal witnesses. You can read through history and you can see how unusual that was and still is. Often, societies would have things like trial by coerced confession. Do you know what that is? Have you ever been to Europe and visited and seen the torture chambers there? Do you know what that was for? We think you're guilty. Though you either confess to this thing or else the lashing is what you're going to get. God would not allow for that. Uh, and in fact, uh, in the Middle Ages, when people had suspicion that people were witches, they put them on this dunking stool and plunged them on, underwater. If they, if they came up alive, they were guilty and they were put to death. If they died in the water, they were declared innocent and the priest prayed for their souls. God wouldn't allow for that among his people. And there have been so many other ways that people have tried to determine guilt or innocence by duels, casting lots, uh, taking poison. But in his wisdom, God said, no. You're not going to convict a person in your society. You're not going to have a just society unless it is based upon truthfulness established by witnesses. Do you think he was wise? And in case you were involved in the field of law, you might want to look at the uh, development of this in Deuteronomy 19:15 and following, in which God said, listen, there have to be witnesses as to what is true. And not just one, there have to be at least two or three. There has to be corroboration. And not just that, in case they've come together and plotted against you, there has to be the opportunity for cross-examination. And not only that, if a person is discovered to have lied in a, in a courtroom, the, the punishment for that is extremely severe. See how important this is to God, because he wanted to have a just world. Now, I'll just say, Jesus would take that, those same statements about telling the truth about people in the courtroom and apply it to the life of the church. You can read about it in Matthew chapter 18. Uh, Jesus says, if somebody feels like somebody in the church should be disciplined and they bring it, don't allow that to happen with just one person making a criticism. Every matter in Matthew 18, 16, every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. And then the Apostle Paul takes that same thing and says, OK, I'm going to make it even more specific. First uh, Timothy, chapter five, verse 19. And pastors, I see Scott down here, and anybody in the ministry council and elders, we love this verse. Because when you're in a position like ours, sometimes you know you do some things that aren't great and the accusations will be brought. And if they aren't good things that you've done, they need to be brought. But listen, the Apostle Paul says, be careful. Do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. You see in his love and in his wisdom, God has wanted to say to us that unsubstantiated criticisms and accusations about fellow Christians should not be tolerated in the church any more than they should be tolerated in the courtroom. So I, I've thought about this in the churches and the 
communities I've been in. I think you and I should make this sort of our, our practice. Yeah. If when we're standing outside in the plaza or uh, meeting people in the community in a Bible study or something, and we hear a fellow brother and sister uh, criticize another member of the church, especially senior pastor, uh, I think we need to turn to that person and say something like this. All right, I'll consider it, but you have two or three witnesses who will agree with you. Do you know what will happen? I think in nine out of ten cases, the person will backpedal. And in the one case where it's true, we'll be able to engage in real discipline that leads to loving restoration. Now, there's an area of speech that God says, thou shalt not. Let me ask you, is it good or is it not good? I'm telling you, it is a blessing that God has said, I'm going to give you a great gift of speech. But don't use it to bring false witness against brothers and sisters or against people in your society. Second area. I've called it slander. It really is using our speech to do damage to another person. So many verses about that. Leviticus 19.16 is one of the most specific. Do not go about spreading slander among your people. By slander, the use of words simply to do damage to people without any thought about people being made in God's image. Why? Why? Is God saying, listen, that will do so much harm. Why is he roping that off? It's because words are powerful. Uh, there's, the, there, there's this old uh, childhood uh, maxim, and I've used it in other sermons, but it really applies here, where children will say, well, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. Let me tell you, that is not in the Bible. <laughs> Just mark it down. There's no Bible verse that says that. Instead, it tells us that God is a God of truth. God is a God who has spoken. He has made us in his image. And one of the most powerful gifts he has given us is the gift of speech. And that speech can be used to bless. But you know as well as I do, that speech can be used to harm. In what ways? Just jotted down a couple of them. One, slander causes alienation. It separates people from people. It tears down the very community that Christ gave his life to establish. I found a few Proverbs because the book of Proverbs is such a rich place to look for, for what God teaches us about speech. And in this one, it says the Lord hates. What does God hate? A false witness who pours out lies and a person who stirs up dissension in the community. It separates close friends, it breaks up families, and it ruins churches. We all know this is true. Second thing that slander does is when it's slandering gossip, it really it hurts us because it becomes a way of life. I've said it becomes addictive. And uh, the, the Bible in Proverbs 18.8 has such an insightful verse about this. Just look at it. The words of the gossip. It's a person who passes on words that do damage to somebody else. The words of the gossip are like choice morsels. Isn't it true? They go down to the inmost parts. What happens is, as we start becoming people who like to pass on things that do damage to other people, it becomes a way of life. On one side, it feels so rewarding. 
feeding that darker side of us on the other side. It doesn't lead us toward living life as God created it to be lived. At the end, slander hurts the victim. And this, this verse is so powerful. Verse, Proverbs 25, 18. It's like a club or, or like a sword or like a sharp arrow is one who gives false testimony against a neighbor. In other words, this is something that I think many can give testimony to. I, I think we have a lot of evidence in our day of, of how powerful verbal abuse is. Many here I know have experienced that, and I'm sure many of us have engaged in it. But in other words, what what the Bible is saying is when we use words negatively, it batters you, it it lacerates you, like it cuts you up emotionally, and it pierces your heart. And it pierces your heart. It, it, It defames the character of people. And it may even be that what we say is not true. But that old other old saying, mud sticks. Is something that happens and sometimes what happens through our words, we can almost never go to all the places where it keeps living on and living on. And and it's sometimes just by our tone of voice that we use our words. Maybe we don't say it, but we imply something that hurts. Oh, you think that he's honest. Oh, oh, do you? And suddenly people have their confidence in the other person undermined. All of this is often caused by our own jealousy of another person. It never is what God would have us to do. All all I want to say today is, listen, this ninth commandment tells us thou shalt not. And in some ways people feel like, oh, that's just another negative and not. But do you see the beauty of it? It it protects us. It protects our community. It makes relationships possible. It makes inner health possible. I think we should thank God that we have a few thou shalt nots, don't you? Which brings me to the third area. And it simply is deceit. Boy, we're getting broad here. Don't use our words to deceive. Leviticus 19.11. Short but sweet. Do not steal. Another commandment. Do not lie. And by that I mean do not deceive one another. Now, did you know as a philosophy major in college? It's at this point that many secular philosophers say, Oh, Christians, how can you uphold that? Never, never deceive. And usually the the point that is brought back is sometimes we should deceive. And almost always cases are brought up. What about the homicidal maniac that breaks into your house with a nine-inch long carving knife and says, where are the children? Now, how do you not deceive them? Let me tell you, that is a a difficult one. And someday I'll I'll try to do a a philosophy class to listen to it to talk about this. But, But let me simply tell you how I think about that. In this imperfect and fallen world, there are rare times where we are faced with a decision where neither decision seems good. It's a lesser of two evils decision, and we are asked to make a wise choice. You have a number of cases like that in the Bible. Uh, Rahab, when the spies were going into Jericho, the Jewish people, Rahab protected them by deceiving, and yet she was uh, praised for her faith. Uh, There are some other cases, Hebrew midwives in Egypt, same kind of thing. But let me tell you that, that even though there may be those times when we have to use our words to point people away from where those children are, they are rare. And almost always that decision is one between deception and violence. And you may never have to face one of those. But the fundamental biblical principle is our words should be truthfully spoken 
and, and that we should never use our words to deceive because when we do, we break up relationships and the church is hurt by it. Ephesians 4.25 is one of the clearest places. The Apostle Paul said, each of you must put off falsehood, deception and speak truthfully to his neighbor because why? You and I are members of one body. You're with me here, aren't you? Um, why should we speak truthfully? Uh, one reason, obviously, is because God himself is a God of truth. And when he speaks, we should be able to trust him. And therefore, we who represent him must be the kind of people whose words, when spoken, uh, can be trusted. The second reason is this. Because truthful words build relationship. Nothing will destroy a marriage or a family or a church or a community more effectively than if we cannot trust one another. That's why Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, you can look at it, said, listen, many people think you only have to tell the truth when you swear by something, swear by heaven or swear by, but not us. When you say yes, make sure that everybody knows it, it's a yes. And when you say no, as a Christian, they should know that it is a no. Because if, they, if, we, can trust, if we can learn to trust one another, that's what establishes relationships. And when we deceive one another, it is sure hard to restore that relationship, isn't it? And that means for us that we need to love. We need to love the truth. I pulled out just a couple of Proverbs to drive it home. Proverbs twenty four twenty six. An honest answer is like a kiss on the lips. Now, I know sometimes it feels like a, a, a kick in the stomach. Uh, so sometimes we have to receive it. And I know sometimes it's not delivered gently. And that's why we have some other verses uh, that, that take it up in this way. Um, Proverbs 15.1. It is a gentle answer that turns away wrath. See, the New Testament says we need to learn to speak the, love, uh, the truth. But always with a deep love for one another. That's why I began my message the way I did today. I, I need to point you to God's truth. But somehow with the same love that he has for people and, and for us. And if we do it that way, our honesty will be received. And sometimes we don't have to say everything that we think. Now, I know sometimes our silence can deceive, but we don't always have to say everything. We don't have to say, oh, well, the preacher talked about the ninth commandment. So I've just got to tell you, you have the biggest schnoz, the biggest nose I've ever seen. I just had to come and tell you that. We don't have to do that. There's a saying from President Calvin Coolidge that I've always loved. And I think it's a lot of wisdom in it. He said, I have found that nothing I never said ever caused me much harm. <laughs> That's really good, isn't it? Nothing I never said ever caused me much harm. But in this area of deceit that God is roping off, I do think it's at this point that you and I have to uh, look at our lives very, very carefully. Because I find in this way, I, mean, I feel the tug toward this so strongly. Uh, we can deceive through exaggeration. Starts when we're children. You know, I'd go out fishing. I'd come home and tell my brother, I caught a fish. It was this big. And I still feel that tug. Here, Lake Avenue Church, we have 23,000 people crowding into the... You always feel that tug. And it really is just a pride. A matter of pride. So sometimes it's to get sympathy. Once again, starting when we're children. Oh, the pain. It's, it's this much. Uh, just to try to get the attention and, and it keeps growing and keeps growing or, or flattery. We need to learn to encourage, but we need to encourage truthfully. 
a person comes and we say, oh, I love your new hairdo, Molly. And the moment she turns, Did you, that looked like a bird's nest on the top. What? But why did we say that? Why, why didn't we just be, be, be silent? Sometimes it's just to get people off our backs. Oh, yeah, the computer will be ready tomorrow at 4 o'clock. I'm glad I'm not working tomorrow. <laughs> See, all of these things are... We can have fun with them, but we, don't you feel the tendency toward all of these things? And God turns to us and says, listen... Words are great gifts. I'll tell you, positive words spoken to your spouse or to your children, to your parents, to your friends, they live on for so long, don't they? They nourish. Harmful words just cut right at our hearts. And God says, I want you to use this great gift of speech in a way that passes on my good news, my love, and my hope the way that I've given it to you. But I, I'm going to rope off these three areas. Uh, perjury. I'm going to rope that off. I'm going to rope off harming one another with words. I'm going to rope off deceiving one another with words. And I ask you, brothers and sisters, is that a negative and destructive command? Or is it beautiful and good? I think we need to thank God for it. Our time is gone, but I just want to pass on two words to us as your pastor. First, the whole time I've been preparing this message, I can still I can hear people saying, the, well, what about them, pastor? Uh, the thought, pastor, you don't know how much I have been verbally abused. And I, in the 90s, there was this phrase that was so often used, hurt people, hurt people. And there's so much truth in that. When we've been hurt, the natural tendency is then for some reason that we want to hurt others the way that we have been been hurt. But I found that sometimes we use that that since that I've been a victim of it as an excuse to do to others what has been done to us. And the question that I want to have for us is, how are we going to stop that pattern? Uh, if we have been the ones who have received that, I, I appreciate that. I, I hurt with you. I know that sometimes you, you need healing and, and restoration. Or you, you need a community like us to come around and pray with you. But also, I think a part of what God is, would be saying to us is we have to be a people who will stop that pattern of using our words to continue to do harm to others. I, I think about the ethic of the, of the school playground where a first grader will come up and insult another first grader. And that second one insults bigger. And the first one goes back and, and, and finds a friend and then punches the second one in the nose. And the other one goes get a bigger friend and they enter into a big battle. And on and on it goes until you have a civil war on the school playground that lives on for so long. And it grows and grows to the families and becomes a war. And you don't even know what started it. How do you stop that sort of thing? It seems to me the only way to stop it is somebody has to get into that and absorb the insult and offer back forgiveness. Is that not what Jesus did on the cross? The insults and the sin of the world were thrown against him. But instead of throwing back condemnation, he offers forgiveness and life to all who will trust him. I've thought of Jesus as the world's shock absorber, absorbing the sin and insult of the world and offering back a life. And as he was sent to this world, he sends us into the world. 
What, don't you think we'll make a difference if we can learn more and more to become? Now, I know the issue that's brought up. What about justice? If I, if I just absorb this blow, uh, what about justice for those who, who deal it out? I tell you, God has placed authorities in our world to bring about justice. In a nation, it should be our courts. Uh, in a church, it should be our spiritual leadership. And uh, here, it should be ministry council. In our families, it should be parents. And you can say, but sometimes they don't do their job well. Sometimes they don't use their position of authority to bring about justice. What then? Well, what does God say? Well, ultimately, he says, vengeance is mine. Again and again, Old and New Testament. I will make sure that this is a just world. Sin will be paid for, but it's my job. Sometimes we want to help him out, don't we? Sometimes we think God can't do that job very well. We want to help him out. He doesn't need our assistance. He will do his job. And our responsibility is to reflect to this hurting world the love and compassion of Christ. Which brings me back to the second and final thing I want to say to us. I've been saying it all through the message, but you know it's become a burden for me all week. I want to ask you in looking at this ninth command, is God good? And I declare to you that he is. If we and the people of this world could but hear what he has to say, there would be so much more peace, there would certainly be reconciliation, and we would experience the shalom and joy of God. God has said, you shall not bear false witness. I know it sounds negative, but I'm telling you, it's beautiful. He he ropes off the things that will destroy us, and he leaves us the freedom to use his great gifts. I want us to leave this place praising and thanking God, even though his commands begin. Thou shalt not. No, no, not even though. I want us to leave this place praising God because his commands say, Thou shalt not, for our good and to his glory. Amen. I want us to bow our heads for just a moment. Well, just before you do, I want to show you this um, Heidelberg Confession as to how brothers and sisters before us have done this a number of weeks, and I find it to be so, so good. What does the ninth commandment require? And here's what other Christians have seen in this ninth commandment. That I bear false witness against no person. Do we have it there? Yes. Nor falsify another person's words. That I be no, be no backbiter or slanderer. That I do not judge nor join in condemning any person rashly or, or unheard. Without a chance to defend themselves. But that I avoid all sorts of lies and deceit. Likewise, that in judgment and all other dealings, I love the truth. I speak it uprightly and confess it. Also that I defend and promote as much as I am able. The honor and the good of the character of my neighbor. Ah, If we will live that way, what a blessing will be to our world. Now let's bow our heads for a moment. As we go to to prayer, I, I want us to have a moment of confession. Think back over your speech of the past week. First, think about any comments you've made about people. Have they been fair? Based on evidence? Well, they have not. 
take a moment now to ask God to forgive you. Um, pledge that you'll go and try to make that right with that person. Think about whether you've lived with integrity this past week, keeping promises, speaking with honesty, using words to build up rather than to tear down. And again, hear the gospel. If we confess our sins, He indeed is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. To cleanse us from all that is not right. Hallelujah. Thanks be to God.